What's up, guys? It's Andrew Baxter on the Late Night Facts of Baxter podcast. Right now, it is currently 5.45 p.m., so it's a great time to spit out the facts and say completely 100% things. You can reach out to me at latenightfactsofbaxter.gmail.com and tweet out to me on Twitter for future episode suggestions at, at latenightfacts. Look at my other podcasts, the AA Podcast, on Anchor, YouTube, and Spotify. And definitely check it out and hit us up for suggestions. All right, now, um, tonight's this late afternoon's facts I'm going to talk about. Uh, it's the third part of the habit series um, that we're going to talk about um, the second law, which is make it attractive. Um, so if you just listened to this and you haven't listened to the previous two, please listen to the previous two. But if you don't feel like feel like it, then it's fine. You can still listen to this, but make sure you um, listen to the previous two, the first law and then like the introduction one, that part one and part two. Um, so yeah, the second law, make it attractive. Um, help, it's going to help you continue, fortify a good habit and make you learn how to break one. So we're going to get right to it. Now we're going we're gonna to talk how to make a habit irresistible. And I'm going to be using, um, James Clear's Atomic Habits book, um, Atomic Habits book a lot for reference. Because it's such a good book, and that's where I'm getting the ideas from. Um, and I'll share some personal um, insights too. So here we go. In the 1940s, a Dutch scientist named Nico Tenbergen, Nico Tenbergen, performed a series of experiments that transformed our understanding of what motivates us. Tenbergen, who eventually won a Nobel Prize for his work, was investigating herring gulls. The gray and white birds often seen flying along the seashores of North America. Adult herring gulls have a small red dot on their beak, and Tim Bergen noticed that newly hatched chicks would peck this spot whenever they wanted food. To begin one experiment, he created a collection of fake cardboard beaks, uh, just a head without a body. When the parents had flown away, he went over to the nest and offered these dummy, um, offered these dummy beaks um, to the chicks. The beaks were obvious fakes, and he assumed the baby birds would reject them altogether. However, when the tiny gulls saw the red spot on the cardboard beak, they pecked away just as if it were attached to their own mother. They had a clear preference for those red spots, as if they had genetically programmed at birth. Soon, Tinbergen discovered that the bigger the red spot, the faster the chicks pecked. Eventually, he created a beak with three large red dots on it. Um, when he placed it over the nest, the baby birds went crazy with delight. They pecked at the little red patches as if it was the greatest beak they've ever seen. Tim Berg and his colleagues discovered similar behaviors in other animals. For example, the gray lag goose is a ground nestling nesting bird. Occasionally, as the mother moves around on the nest, one of the eggs will roll out and settle on the grass nearby. Whenever this happens, the goose will waddle over to the egg 
and use its beak and neck to pull it back into the nest. Tim Bergen discovered that the goose will pull any nearby round object, such as a um, billiard ball or a light bulb, back into the nest. The bigger the object, the greater the response. One goose even made a tremendous effort to roll a volleyball back and sit on top. Like the baby gulls automatically pecking at red dots, the gray lag goose was following an instinctive rule. When I see a round object nearby, I must roll it back into the nest. The bigger the round object, the harder I should try to get it. It's like the brain of each animal is preloaded with certain rules for behavior. And when it comes across an exaggerated version of that rule, it lights up like a Christmas tree. Scientists refer to these exaggerated cues as supernormal stimuli. A supernormal, stimu um, a supernormal stimulus is a heightened version of reality, like a beak with three red dots or an egg the size of a volleyball. And it elicits a stronger response than usual. Humans are also prone to fall for exaggerated versions of reality. Junk food, for example, drives our reward systems into a frenzy. After spending hundreds of thousands of years hunting and foraging for food in the wild, the human brain has evolved to place a high value on salt, sugar, and fat. Some foods are often calorie dense, and they were quite rare when our ancient ancestors were roaming the savanna. When you don't know where your next meal is coming from, eating as much as possible is an excellent strategy. Um, for survival. Um, today, however, we live in a calorie-rich environment. Food is abundant, but your brain continues to crave it like it's scarce. Like it is scarce. Um, placing a high value on salt, sugar, and fat is no longer um, like advantageous, I think that's the right word, uh, to our health. But the craving persists because the brain's reward centers have not changed for approximately 50,000 years. The modern food industry relies on stretching our paleolithic instincts beyond their evolutionary purpose. Um, primary goal for food science is to create products that are more attractive to consumers. Nearly every food in a bag, box, or jar has been enhanced in some way, only with additional flavoring. Um, I guess enhanced too, like those stores nowadays, like BJ's or Sam's Club or Costco, like everything comes in a bigger size. Um, it's not just one, it's always two packs or the jumbo size. Companies spend millions of dollars to discover the most satisfying level of crunch in a potato chip or the perfect amount of fizz in a soda. Entire departments are dedicated to optimizing how a product feels in your mouth. A quality known as Oreo sensation. French fries, for example, are a Potent combination. Golden brown and crunchy on the outside. Light and smooth on the inside. Um, other processed foods enhance dynamic contrast, which refers to items with a combination of sensations like crunchy and creamy. Imagine the gooiness of melted cheese on top of a crispy pizza crust or the crunch of an Oreo cookie combined with its smooth center. With natural unprocessed foods, you tend to experience the same sensations over and over. Like, how's that 17th bite of kale taste? After a few minutes, your brain loses interest and you begin to feel full. 
but foods that are high in dynamic contrast keep the experience novel and interesting, encouraging you to eat more. Ultimately, such strategies enable food scientists to find the bliss point for each product, the precise combination of salt, sugar, and fat that that excites your brain and keeps you coming back for more. The result, of course, is that you overeat because hyperpalatable foods are more attractive to the human brain. As Stephen Gwinnett, a neuroscientist who specializes in eating behavior and obesity, says, quote, we have gotten too good at pushing our own buttons, end quote. So the modern food energy and the overeating habits it has spawned is just one example of the second law of behavior change. Make it attractive. The more attractive an opportunity is, the more likely it has likely it is to become habit forming. Look around. Society is filled with highly engineered versions of reality that are more attractive than the world our ancestors evolved in. Stores feature mannequins with exaggerated hips and breasts to sell clothes. Social media delivers more likes and praise in a few minutes than we could ever get in the office or at home. Um, Online porn splices together stimulating scenes at a rate that would be impossible to replicate in real life. Advertisements are created with a combination of ideal lighting, professional makeup, and photoshopped edits. Even the model doesn't look like the person in the final image. These are the supernormal stimuli of our modern world. They exaggerate features that are naturally attractive to us, and our instincts go wild as a result, driving us into excessive shopping habits, social media habits, porn habits, eating habits, and many um, others. If history serves as a guide, the opportunities of the future will be more attractive than those of today. The trend is for wards to become more concentrated and stimuli to become more enticing. Junk food is a more concentrated form of calories than natural foods. Hard liquor is a more concentrated form of alcohol than beer. Video games are a more concentrated form of play than board games. Compared to nature, these pleasure-packed experiences are hard to resist. We have the brains of our ancestors, but temptations they never had to face. If you want to increase the odds that a behavior will occur, then you need to make it attractive. Point blank. Period. Throughout um, this discussion of the second law, I want you guys, um, or the goal is overall, to learn how to make our habits irresistible. While it is not possible to transform every habit into supernormal stimulus, we can make an, any habit more enticing. Um, to do this, we have to kind of understand what a craving is and how it works. And now we're going to get into what's called the dopamine spike. So now we're going to get rolling into this. Scientists contract the precise moment and craving occurs by measuring a neurotransmitter called dopamine. The importance of dopamine became apparent in 1954 when the neuroscientists James Olds and Peter Milner ran an experiment that revealed the neurological process beyond craving and desire by implanting electrodes in the brains of rats. The researchers blocked the release of dopamine 
To the surprise of the scientists, the rats lost all will to live. They wouldn't eat. They wouldn't reproduce. They didn't crave anything. Within a few days, the animals died of thirst. In follow-up studies, other scientists also inhibited the dopamine-releasing parts of the brain, but this time, they squirted little droplets of sugar into the mouths of the dopamine-depleted rats. Their little rat faces lit up in pleasurable grins from the tasty substance. Even though dopamine was blocked, they liked the sugar just as much as before. They just didn't want it anymore. The ability to experience pleasure remained, but without dopamine, desire died. And without desire, action stopped. When other researchers reversed this process and flooded the reward system of the brain with dopamine, animals perform habits at breakneck speed. In one study, mice received a powerful hit of dopamine each time they poked their nose in a box. Within minutes, the mice developed a craving so strong they began poking their nose into the box 800 times per hour. Habits are dopamine-driven feedback loop. We talked about that feedback loop earlier. Every behavior that is highly habit-forming, taking drugs, eating junk food, playing video games, browsing social media, um, is associated with higher levels of dopamine. The same can be said for our most basic habitual behaviors like eating food, drinking water, having sex, and interacting socially. For years, scientists assumed dopamine was all about pleasure, but now we know it plays a central role in many neurological processes, including motivation, learning and memory, punishment, and aversion, and voluntary movement. When it comes to habits, the key takeaways is dopamine is released not only when you experience pleasure, but also when you anticipate it. Gambling addicts have a dopamine spike right before they place a bet, not after they win. Cocaine addicts get a surge of dopamine when they see the powder, not after they take it. Whenever you predict that an opportunity be rewarding, your levels of dopamine spike in anticipation. Oh, your levels of dopamine spike in anticipation. And whenever dopamine rises, so does your motivation to act. It is the anticipation of reward, not the fulfillment of it, that gets us to action. Interestingly, the reward system that is activated in the brain when you receive reward is the same system that is activated when you anticipate it. This is one reason the anticipation of an experience can often feel better than the attainment of it. As a child, thinking about Christmas morning could be better than opening the gifts. As an adult, daydreaming about an upcoming vacation can be more enjoyable than actually being on vacation. Scientists refer to this as the difference between wanting and liking. So if you have the book, um, I'm guessing you guys don't. But if you get it, note that on page 107, there's a good diagram on this. Um... Good diagram of four people's different, um, the same person, same brain of a person, um, four different scenarios, and it shows where the dopamine spike hits, um, either in the cue, the craving, the response, or the rewards, so that feedback loop, um, what we talked earlier. Um, 
so our brain has far more neural um, circuitry allocated for wanting rewards than for liking them. The wanting centers in the brain are large. The brainstem, the nucleus um, accumbens, the ventral tegmental area, the dorsal striatum, the amygdala, and portions of the prefrontal cortex. Wow, those were hard words. Um, by comparison, the liking centers of the brain are much smaller. They are often referred to as hedonic hotspots and are distributed like tiny islands throughout the brain. Um, for instance, researchers have found tiny islands. Uh, no, sorry. For instance, um, researchers have found that 100% of the nucleus um, acubans is activated during wanting. Meanwhile, only 10% of the structure is activated during liking. The fact that the brain allocates so much precious space to the regions responsible for craving desire provides further evidence of the crucial role these processes play. Desire is the engine that drives behavior. Each action is taken because of the anticipation that precedes it. It is a craving that leads to the response. And these insights reveal the importance of the second law of behavior change. We need to make our habits attractive because it is the expectation of rewarding, of a rewarding experience that motivates us to act in the first place. This is where a strategy known as temptation bundling comes into play. And before we move on, I'm going to talk about maybe like a reward thing. So I do a lot during the day, um, work out, play basketball, schoolwork, um, Try to go to church every day, even though it's closed. I just park by the church and just pray. Um, I do all these morning habits and night habits. So I've like a limited free time, but but free time has nothing to do with this, what I'm talking about. Um Yes, I can do these things like back to back to back days without a reward. But after a while, it's gonna seem like, oh, what's the point of doing this every day? So recently I've like done this uh, marble thing. So when I do all my morning habits and night habits, when I do my morning habit, I get a marble in the bucket. After my night habit, I put a marble in the bucket. And at the end of the day, I can exchange those two marbles to watch a movie. And I found like every night when I watch a movie, like when I play, play on the movie, I feel like a dopamine spike. I feel rewarded and it works. Um, so try to think of something like that. It doesn't have to be a movie. It could be a TV show or something like that. Or it doesn't have to be TV. It can be anything. Like your favorite book. That's really, that keeps you on the edge. But you got to be disciplined. So you don't have to read it. Don't read it all at once. Try to read like a chapter a day. So you can be more inclined, more motivated um, to get everything done the next day. So you can read that another chapter at night. So that's why it's important to have those rewards every day. So you can um, have the motivation and uh, more willpower to do that thing every day. So moving on. So how do you use temptation bundling to make your habits uh, more attractive? So Roman Byron, an electrical engineering student in Dublin, Ireland, enjoyed watching Netflix. But he also knew that he should exercise more often than he did. Putting his engineering skills to use, Byron hacked his stationary bike and connected to his laptop and television. Then he wrote a computer program that would allow Netflix to run 
only if he was cycling at a certain speed. If he slowed down for too long, whatever show he was watching would pause until he started pedaling again. He was, in the words of one fan, quote, eliminating obesity one Netflix binge at a time, end quote. He was also employing temptation bundling to make his exercise habit more attractive. Temptation bundling works by linking an action you want to do with an action you need to do. In Byron's case, he bundled watching Netflix, um, the thing he wanted to do, with riding his stationary bike, the thing he needed to do. And businesses are masters at temptation bundling. So for instance, when the American Broadcasting Company, more commonly known as ABC, launched its Thursday night television lineup for the 2014-2015 season, they promoted temptation bundling on a massive scale. So every Thursday, the company would air three shows created by screenwriter Shonda Rhimes. So Grey's Anatomy, um, which kind of despise um, scandal and how to get away with murder. They branded it at they branded it as TGIT on ABC. So. TGIT um, stands for Thank God It's Thursday. In addition to promoting the shows, ABC encouraged viewers to make popcorn, drink red wine, and enjoy the evening. And Andrew Hubitz, um, head of a head of scheduling for ABC, described the idea behind the campaign. He said, "Quote: We see it Thursday night as a viewership opportunity." with either couples of women by themselves who want to sit down, escape, and have fun and drink their red wine and have some popcorn, end quote. The brilliance of the strategy is that ABC was associating the thing they needed viewers to do, watch their shows with activities their viewers already wanted to do, relax, drink wine, and eat popcorn. Over time, people began to connect watching ABC with, with feeling relaxed and entertained, if you drink red wine and eat popcorn at 8 p.m. every Thursday, then eventually 8 p.m. on Thursday means relaxation and entertainment. The reward gets associated with the cue, and the habit of turning on the television becomes more attractive. You're more likely to find a behavior attractive if you get to do one of your favorite things at the same time. Perhaps you want to hear about the latest celebrity gossip, but you need to get in shape. Using temptation bundling, you can only read the tabloids and watch reality shows at the gym. Maybe you want to get a pedicure, but you need to clean out your email inbox. Solution. Only get a pedicure while processing overdue work emails. Temptation bundling is one way to apply a psychology theory known as Premax Principle. Named after the work of Professor David Premack, the principle states that, quote, more probable behaviors will reinforce less probable behaviors, end quote. In other words, even if you don't really want to process overdue work emails, you'll become conditioned to do it if it means you get to work, if you get to do something you really want to do along the way. You can even combine temptation bundling with the habit stacking strategy um, I discussed last podcast to create Set of rules to guide your behavior. The habit stacking plus temptation bundling formula is after blank current habit, I will blank habit I need. After blank habit I need, I will blank habit um, I want. 
So if you want to read the news, but you need to express more gratitude. After I get my morning coffee, I will say one thing I'm grateful for that happened yesterday. That's a need. After I say one thing I'm grateful for, I will read the news. Want. If you want to watch sports, but you need to make sales calls. So after I get back from my lunch break, I will call three potential clients. Need. After I call three potential clients, I will check ESPN. Want. Final example. If you want to check Facebook, but you need to exercise more. After I pull up my phone, I will do 10 burpees. Need. After I do 10 burpees, I will check Facebook. Want. So the hope is that eventually you'll look forward to calling three clients or doing 10 burpees because it means you get to read the latest sports news or check Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Visco, all the social media platforms. Doing the thing you need to do means you get to do the things you want to do. Uh, temptation bundling is one way to create a heightened version of any habit by connecting it with something you already want. Engineering a truly irresistible habit is a hard task. But the simple strategy can be employed to make nearly any habit more attractive than it would be otherwise. So there you have it right there. How to make a habit irresistible. And this is falls under the second law of behavior change. Make it attractive. So now we are going to talk about um, the role of family and friends. And how can they help you in shaping your habits? So here we go. In 1965, a Hungarian man named Laszlo Polgar wrote a series of strange letters to a woman named Clara. Laszlo was a firm believer in hard work. In fact, it was all he believed in. He completely rejected the idea of innate talent. He claimed that with deliberate practice and the development of good habits, a child could become a genius in any field. His mantra was, Quote, a genius is not born, but is educated and trained. Lazlo believed in this idea so strongly that he wanted to test it with his own children. And when he was writing to Clara, because he needed a wife willing to jump on board, Clara was, jump on board. Clara was a teacher, and although she may not have been as um, adamant, Mrs. Lazlo, she also believed that with proper instruction, anyone could advance their skills. Lazlo decided chess would be a suitable field for the experiment, and he laid out a plan to raise his children to become chess prodigies. The kids would be homeschooled, a rarity in Hungary at the time. The house would be filled with chess books and pictures of famous chess players. The children would play against each other constantly and compete in the best tournaments they could find. The family would help, um, would the family would keep a strict file system of the tournament history of every competitor in the child every competitor the children face their lives would be dedicated to chess laszlo successfully courted clara and within a few years the um polgers were parents of three young girls susan sophia and judith susan the oldest began playing chess when she was four years old in six months she was defeating adults sophia the middle child did even better. By 14, she was a world champion. And a few years later, she began, she became a grand master. Judith, the youngest, was the best of all. By age five, she could beat 
her father. At 12, she was the youngest player ever listed among the top 100 chess players in the world. At 15 years and four months old, she became the youngest grandmaster of all time. Younger than Bobby Fischer, the previous record holder. For 27 years, she was the number one ranked female chess player in the world. The childhood of the Polgar sisters was atypical, to say. And yet, if you ask them about it, they claimed their lifestyle was attractive, even enjoyable. In interviews, the sisters talk about their childhood and entertaining rather than grueling. They loved playing chess. They couldn't get enough of it. Once Laszlo reportedly found Sophia playing chess in the bathroom in the middle of the night, encouraging her to go back to sleep, he said, quote, Sophia, leave the pieces alone. To which she replied, Daddy, they won't leave me alone. The Polgar sisters grew up in a culture that prioritized chess above all else, praised them for it, rewarded them for it. In the world, an obsession with chess was normal. And as we're about to see, whatever habits are normal in your culture are among the most attractive behaviors you will find. So, overall, humans are herd animals. We want to fit in, to bond with others, and to earn the respect and approval of our peers. Such inclinations are essential to our survival. For most of our evolutionary history, our ancestors lived in tribes. Becoming separated from the tribe, or worse, being cast out, was a death sentence. Quote, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. I found that quote from Game of Thrones, so I thought that would be a cool quote to say. Quote, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives. End quote. Meanwhile, those who collaborated and bonded with others enjoyed increased safety, mating opportunities, and access to resources. Charles Darwin noted, quote, in the long history of humankind, those who learn to collaborate and improvise most effectively have prevailed, end quote. As a result, one of the deepest human desires is to belong, and the ancient preference um, exerts a powerful influence um, on our modern behavior. We don't choose our earliest habits. We imitate them. We follow the script handed down by our friends and family, our church or school, our local community, and society at large. Each of these cultures and groups comes with its own set of expectations and standards. When and whether to get married, how many children to have, which holidays to celebrate, how much money to spend on your child's birthday party. In many ways, these social norms are the invisible rules that guide your behavior each and every day. You've always, you're always keeping them in mind, even if they are not at the top of your mind. Often you follow the habits of your culture without thinking, without questioning, um, and sometimes without remembering. Most of the time, going along with the group does not feel like a burden. Everyone wants to be belong. If you grow up in a family um, that rewards you for chess skills, playing chess will seem like a very attractive thing to do. If you work in a job where everyone wears expensive suits, then you'll be inclined to buy one as well. If all of your friends are sharing an inside joke or using a new phrase, you want to do it too, so they know that you get it. Um, If all your friends have e-cigarettes, have jewels, then you're more inclined, not all of your buddy, but some people are more inclined to get it so they can 
um, fit in. It's kind of different for those drugs and stuff because some people have morals and some people think it is bad compared to others who don't think so. Behaviors are attractive when they help us fit in. We imitate the behavior, we imitate the habits of three groups in particular. Number one, the close. Number two, the many. Number three, the powerful. It sounds like the Marine slogan. The few, the many, the powerful. I think, yeah. No. Yes. Um, each group officer, each group offers, oh no, the few, the many, the proud. That's what it was. The many. It's the only one that's. Um, Okay, going back. Each group offers an opportunity to leverage the second law of behavior change and makes our habits more attractive. So number one, imitating the close. Proximity has a powerful effect on our behavior. Um, this is true of the physical environment, but is also true of the social environment. We pick up habits from the people around us. We copy the way our parents handle arguments, the way our peers flirt with one another, the way our coworkers get results. When your friend smokes pot, you give it a try too. When your wife has a habit of double checking that door is locked before you go, before going to bed, you pick it up as well. Uh, as a general rule, closer we are to someone, the more likely we are to imitate some of their behaviors. One quote, one groundbreaking groundbreaking study tracked twelve thousand people. For 32 years and found that a person's chances of becoming obese increased by 57% if he or she had a friend who became obese, end quote. It works the other way, too. Another study found that if one person in a relationship lost weight, the other partner would also slim down about one-third of the time. Our friends and family provide a sort of invisible peer pressure that pulls us in their direction. Of course, peer pressure. Pressure is bad only if you are surrounded by bad influences. Um, when astronaut, um, astronaut Mike um, Massimino um, was a graduate student at MIT, he took a small robotics class. Of the 10 people in the class, four became astronauts. So if your goal was to make it into space, then that room was about the best culture you could ask for. Similarly, one study found that the higher... Your best friend's IQ at age 11 or 12, the higher your IQ would be at age 15, even after controlling for natural levels of intelligence. We soak up the qualities and practices of those around us. One of the most effective things you can do to build better habits is to join a culture where your desired behaviors is the normal behavior. New habits seem achievable when you see others doing them every day. Um, if you are surrounded by fit people, um, you're more likely to consider working out to be a common be habit. If you're surrounded by jazz lovers, you're more likely to believe it's reasonable to play jazz every day. Your culture sets your expectation for what is normal. Surround yourself with people who have the habits you want to have yourself. You'll rise together. To make your habits even more attractive, you can take the strategy one step forward. Further, forward. Um, join a culture where, one, you desire behavior, where your desired behavior is a normal behavior, and two, you already have something in common with the group. So it says here in the book, Steve 
um, camp. An entrepreneur in New York City runs a company um, called Nerd Fitness, which helps quote nerd which helps quote nerds, misfits, and mutants lose weight, get strong, and get healthy. End quote. His clients include video game lovers, movie fanatics, and average Joes who want to get in shape. Many people feel out of place the first time they go to the gym or try to change their diet. But if you're already similar to the other members of the group in some ways, um, say you're um, love for Star Wars, um, change becomes more appealing because it feels like something people like you already do. Nothing sustains motivation better than belonging to the tribe. It transforms a personal quest into a shared one. Previously, you were on your own. Your identity was singular. You are a reader. You are a musician. You are an athlete. When you join a book club or a band or a cycling group, your identity becomes linked to those around you. Growth and change is no longer an individual pursuit. We are readers. We are musicians. We are cyclists. We are basketball players. The shared identity begins to reinforce your personal identity. This is why remaining this is why remaining part of a group after achieving a goal is crucial to maintaining your habits. It's friendship and community that embedded a new identity and help behaviors last over the long run. The second one, imitating the many. In the 1950s, it says, quote, psychologist Solomon Ash conducted a series um, of experiments that are now taught to legions of undergrads each year. To begin each experiment, experiment the subject entered a, the room with a group of strangers unbeknownst to them. The other participants were actors planted by the researcher and instructed to, de to deliver scripted answers to certain questions. The group would be shown one card with a line on it, and then a second card with a series of lines. Each person was asked to select the line on the second card that was similar to length in the line on the first card. It was a very simple task. Um, and I'm trying to explain the diagram that's here in the book uh, i don't know how to explain it really well in the book so if you have the book if you want to go buy it, it's on page 119 it's figure 10 and the experiment always begins the same first there would be some okay here so here's kind of a summary i'm reading it from the book now the experiment always begins the same began the same first there would be some easy trials where everyone agreed on the correct line after a few rounds, the participants were shown a test that was just as obvious as the previous ones, except the actors in the room would select an intentionally incorrect answer. For example, they would respond, um, I'm not going to say that because talking about the diagram. Um, the subject, who was unaware of the ruse, would immediately become bewildered um, when the, um, the actors chose the wrong one and it was immediately off. And like clearly off from the one line compared to the other one that the actor saw it was the same, but they're saying it wrong intentionally. Their eyes would begin, would open wide. They would laugh nervously to themselves. They would double check. They would double check the reactions of other participants. Their agitation would grow as one person after another delivered the same incorrect response. Soon the subject began to doubt their own eyes. Eventually they delivered the answer they knew in their heart to be incorrect. Ash ran this experiment many times and in many different ways. What he discovered was that as the number of actors increased, so did the conformity of the subject. 
if it was just a subject and one actor, then there was no effect on the person's choice. They just assumed that they were in the room with a dummy. When two actors were in the room with the subject, there was still a little impact. But as the number of people increased to three actors and four and all the way to eight, the subject became more likely to second-guess themselves. By the end of the experiment, nearly 75% of the subjects had agreed with the group answer, even though um, it was obviously um, incorrect. Whenever we are unsure how to act, we look to the group to guide our behavior. We are constantly scanning our environment and wondering, what is everyone else doing? We check reviews on Amazon or Yelp or TripAdvisor because we want to imitate the best buying. Eating and travel habits is usually a smart energy. There's evidence in numbers. But there can be a downside. The normal behavior of the tribe often overpowers the desired behavior of the individual. For example, one study found that when a chimpanzee learns an effective way to crack nuts open as a member of one group and then switches to a new group that uses a less effective strategy, it would avoid using the superior nut cracking method just to blend with the rest of the chimps. Humans are similar. There's a tremendous internal pressure to comply with the norms of the social group. The reward of being accepted is often greater than the reward of winning an argument, looking smart, or finding truth. Most days we'll rather be wrong with the crowd than be right by ourselves. The human mind knows how to get along with others. It wants to get along with others. This is our natural mode. You can override it. You can choose to ignore the group or to stop caring what other people think. But it takes work. Running against the grain of your culture requires extra effort. When changing your habits means challenging the tribe, change is, change is unattractive. When changing your habits means fitting in with the tribe, change is very effective. Now the third point. Imitating the powerful. Humans everywhere pursue power, prestige, and status. We want pins and medallions on our jackets. We want president or partner in our titles. We want to be acknowledged, recognized, and praised. This tendency can seem vain, but overall, it's a smart move. Historically, a person with greater power and status has access to more resources, worries less about survival, and proves to be a more attractive mate. We are drawn to, to behaviors that earn us respect, approval, admira admiration, admiration, um, and status. We want to be the one in the gym who could do muscle-ups, or the musician who can play the hardest chord progressions, or the parent with the most accomplished children because these things separate us from the crowd. Once we fit in, we start looking for ways to stand out. This is one reason why we care so much about the habits of highly effective people. We try to copy the behavior of successful people because we desire success ourselves. Many of our daily habits are imitations of people we admire. You replicate the marketing strategy of the most successful firms in your industry. You make a recipe um, from your favorite baker. You borrow the storytelling strategies of your favorite writer. You mimic the communication style of your boss. We imitate people we envy. Highly status people enjoy the approval, respect, and praise of others. And that means if a behavior can get us approval, respect, and praise, we find it attractive. We are also motivated to avoid behaviors that would lower our status. We trim our hedges and mow our lawn because we don't want to be the slob of the neighborhood. When our mother comes to visit, we clean up the house because we don't want to be judged. We are continually wondering, what will others think of me? And altering our behavior based on the answer. The Polgar sisters, the chess prodigies mentioned um, early in my podcast, um, are evidence of the powerful and lasting impact social influences can have on our behavior.
The sisters practiced chess for many hours each day and continued this remarkable effort for decades. But these habits and behaviors maintained their attractiveness in part because they were valued by the culture. From the praise of their parents to the achievement of different status markers, life like becoming a grandmaster, they had many reasons to continue their effort. So that is why the role of family, friends, and shaping our habits is crucial and is part of the second law. Make it attractive. So now we're going to move on to um, kind of the inversion of the second law on how to find and fix the causes of your bad habits. So now, moving on. In late 2012, um, this is quoting James Clear, because this is a per- his own personal account. So, quote, in late 2012, I was sitting in an old apartment just a few blocks from Istanbul's most famous street, Istiklal, Kadisi. I was in the middle of a four-day trip to Turkey. My guide, Mike, was relaxing in a worn-out armchair a few feet away. Mike wasn't really a guide. He was just a guy from Maine who had been living in Turkey for five years, but he offered to show me around while I was visiting the country, and I took him up on it. On this particular night, I had been invited to dinner with him and a handful of his Turkish friends. There were seven of us, and I was the only one who had at some point, smoked at least one pack of cigarettes per day. I asked one of the Turks how he got started. Friends, he said. It always starts with your friends. One friend smokes, then you try. What was truly fascinating was that half of the people in the room had managed to quit smoking. Mike had been smoke-free for a few years at this point, and he swore up and down that he broke the habit because of a book called Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking. Quote, it frees you from the mental burden of smoking, he said. It tells you, stop lying to yourself. You know you don't actually want to smoke. You know you don't really enjoy this. It helps you feel like you're not the victim anymore. You start to realize that you don't need to smoke. James says he has never tried a cigarette, but he says he t- he took a look at the book afterward out of cross curiosity, and the author employs an interesting strategy to help smokers eliminate their cravings. He systematically reframes each cue associated with smoking and gives it a new meaning. He says things like, you think you're quitting something, but you're not quitting anything because cigarettes do nothing for you. You think smoking is something you do to be social, but it's not. You can be social without smoking at all. You think smoking is about relieving stress, but it's not. Smoking does not relieve your nerves. It destroys them. Over and over, he repeats these phrases and others like them. Get it clear into your mind, he says. You're not, you're losing nothing and you're making marvelous positive gains, not only in health, energy, and money, but also in confidence, self-respect, freedom, and most important of all, and the length and quality of your future life. By the time you get to the end of the book, smoking seems like the most ridiculous thing in the world to do. And if you no longer uh, expect smoking to bring you any benefits, you have no reason to smoke. It is an inversion of the second law of behavior change. Make it unattractive. Yeah, this idea might sound overly simplistic. 
just change your mind and you can quit smoking. But just stick with it for a minute, guys. So now we're going to talk about where cravings come from. Every behavior has a surface level craving and a deeper underlying motive. Um, sometimes I get like cravings. I like, or like, I want to eat tacos or I really want that gluten-free protein bar. If you were to ask me kind of why I want to eat those gluten-free protein bars, I wouldn't say because I need food to survive. But the truth is somewhere deep down, I am motivated to eat that bar because I have to eat to survive. The underlying motive is to obtain food and water, even if my specific craving is for gluten-free bar. And some of our underlying motives include conserve energy, obtain food and water, find love and reproduce, connect with and bond with others, win social acceptance and approval, reduce uncertainty, achieve status and prestige. A craving is just a specific manifestation of a deeper underlying motive. Your brain did not evolve with the desire to smoke cigarettes or to check Instagram or to play video games. At a deep level, you simply want to reduce uncertainty and relieve anxiety to win social acceptance and approval or to achieve status. Look at nearly any product that is habit-forming and you'll see that it does not create a new motivation, but rather latches onto the underlying motives of human nature. Find love and reproduce equals using Tinder. Connect and bond with others equals um, browsing Facebook. And then you got win social acceptance and approval. That equals posting on Instagram. Reduce uncertainty. That equals searching on Google. Achieve status and prestige. He was playing video games. And speaking of video games, I just saw the oddest thing today. I saw my brother play Fortnite. I mean, that's not odd. I mean, yes, it is odd, but I'm used to that. And I looked over. It's Travis Scott in this concert thing of Fortnite. I swear, this quarantine thing is, I'm seeing the weirdest stuff from Rocket League on ESPN to Travis Scott concert on Fortnite. I, I, I don't know what to tell you, man. All right, moving on. Your habits are modern day solutions to ancient desires. New versions of old vices. The underlying motives behind human behavior remain the same. The specific habits we perform differ based on the period of history. So here's the powerful part. There are many different ways to address the same underlying motive. One person might learn to reduce stress by smoking a cig. Another person learns to ease their anxiety by going for a run. Your current habits are not necessarily the best way to solve the problems you face. They're just the methods you learn to use. Once you, so, once you associate a solution with the problem you need to solve, you keep coming back to it. Habits are all about associations. These associations determine whether we predict a habit to be worth repeating or not. Um, your brain is continually absorbing information, noticing cues in the environment. So every time you perceive a cue, your brain runs a simulation and makes a prediction about what to do in the next moment. So here's a cue. So here's some examples. Cue. You notice that the stove is hot. Prediction. If I touch it, I'll get burned. So I should avoid touching it. Another example, cute. You see the traffic light turn green. Prediction. If I step on the gas, I make it safely through the intersection and get closer to my destination. So I should step on the gas. This sounds like a lot like logic. You see a cue, categor you, if you see a cue, 
categorize it based on your past experience and determine the appropriate response. This all happens in an instant. In an instant. But it plays a crucial role in your habits because every action is perceived by prediction. Life feels um, reactive, but it is usually predictive. Um, all day long, you are making your best guess of how to act given what you have just seen and what has worked for you in the past. You are endlessly predicting what will happen in the next moment. Our behaviors heavily depend on these predictions. Put another way, um, our behaviors heavily depend on how we interpret the events that happen to us, not necessarily the objective reality of the events themselves. Two people can look at the same cigarette, and one feels the urge to smoke while the other is disgusted by the smell. The same cue could spark a good habit or a bad habit, depending on your prediction. The cause of your habits is actually the prediction that precedes them. So these predictions lead to feelings, which is how we typically describe a craving, a feeling, a desire, and urge. Feelings and emotions transform the cues we perceive and the predictions we make into a signal that we can apply. They help explain that we are currently sensing. For instance, whether or not you realize it, you're noticing how warm or cold you feel right now. The temperature drops by 1 degree, you probably won't do anything. The temperature drops 10 degrees, however, you'll feel cold and put on another layer of clothing. Feeling cold was the signal that prompted you to act. You have been sensing the cues the entire time, but it is only when you predict that you would be better off in a different state than you take action. A craving is the sense that something is missing. It is a desire to change your eternal state. When the temperature falls, there is a gap between what your body is currently sensing and what it wants to be sensing. This gap between your current state and your desired state provides a reason to act. Desire is the difference between where you are now and where you want to be in the future. Even the tiniest action is tinged with the motivation to feel differently than you do in the moment. When you binge eat or light up or browse social media, what you really want is not a potato chip or a cigarette or a bunch of likes. What you really want is to feel different. Our feelings and emotions tell us whether to hold steady in our current state or to make a change. They help us to decide the best course of action. Neurologists have discovered that when emotions and feelings are impaired, we actually lose the ability to make decisions. We have no signal of what to pursue and what to avoid. As a neuroscientist, Antonio Damasio explains, it is emotion that allows you to mark things as good, bad, or insufficient. To summarize the specific cravings you feel and habits you perform are really an attempt to address your fundamental underlying motives. Whenever a habit successfully addresses a motive, you develop a craving to do it again. In time, you learn to predict that checking social media will help you feel loved or that watching YouTube will allow you to forget your fears. Habits are attractive when, you, when we associate them with positive feelings, and we can use this insight to our advantage rather, ten, rather to our um, disadvantage. So now I'm going to talk about um, how to reprogram your brain to enjoy um, hard habits. So you can make hard habits more attractive if you learn to associate them with a positive experience. Sometimes all you need is a slight mindset shift. For instance, we often talk about everything we have to do in a given day. You have to wake up early for work. You have to make another sales call for your business. You have to cook dinner for your family. Now imagine changing just word one word. You don't have to. You 
get to. You get to wake up early for work. You get to make another sales call for your business. You get to cook dinner for your beloved family. By simply changing one word, you shift the way you view each event. You transition from seeing these behaviors as burdens and turn them into opportunities. The key point is that both versions of reality are true. You have to do those things, and you also get to do them. We can find evidence for whatever mindset we choose. I want, um, quoting this from James Clear, he said, quote, I once heard a story about a man who uses a wheelchair. When asked if it was a difficult if it was difficult being confined, he responded, I'm not confined to my wheelchair. I'm liberated by it. If it wasn't for my wheelchair, I would be bedbound and never able to leave my house. This shift in perspective completely transformed how he lived each day. Reframing your habits to highlight the benefits rather than their drawbacks is a fast and lightweight way to reprogram your mind and make a habit seem more attractive. Here's multiple ways. Exercise. Many people associate exercise with being a challenging task that drains energy and wears you down. You can just as easily view it as a way to develop skills and build you up. Instead of telling yourself, I need to go run in the morning, say, it's time to build endurance and get fast. Another category, finance. Saving money is associated is often associated with sacrifice. However, you can associate with freedom rather than limitation if you realize one simple truth. Living below your current means increases your future means. The money you save this month increases your purchasing power uh, next month. Meditation. Anyone who has tried meditation for more than three minutes, seconds know how kind of frustrating it can be when the next distraction comes up and pops in your brain. You can transform frustration to delight when you realize that each in- interruption gives you a chance to practice returning to your breath. Distraction is a good thing because you need distractions to practice meditation. Final point, like this pre-game jitters before games. Many people feel anxious before delivering a big presentation or um, competing in an um, important event, sporting event. They experience quicker breathing, fast heart rate, heightened arousal, and for me especially, tightened calves. Especially the left one for some reason. Um, if we interpret these feelings negatively, then we feel threatened and tense up. If we interpret these feelings positively, then we can respond with fluidity and grace. You can reframe, I am nervous too. I'm excited and I'm getting an adrenaline rush to help me concentrate. These little mindset shifts aren't magic. But they can help change the feelings you associate with a particular habit or situation. So if you want to take it a step further, you can create a motivation ritual. You simply practice associating your habits with something you enjoy. Then you can use that cue whenever you need a bit of motivation. For instance, um, if you always play the same song before a game, then you begin to link the game with that music. Um, Here's an example. Um, Athletes use similar strategies to get themselves in the mindset to perform. and it says James Clear's experience. It said, "Quote: During my baseball career, career, I developed a specific ritual of stretching and throwing before each game. The whole sequence took about ten minutes, and I did it the same way every single time. While it physically warms me up to play, more importantly, it put me in the right mental state. I began to associate my pregame ritual with feeling competitive and focused. Even if I wasn't motivated beforehand, by the time I was done with my ritual, I was in 
game mode. You can adapt the strategy for nearly any purpose. Say you want to feel happier in general. Find something that makes you truly happy, like petting your dog or taking a bubble bath, playing basketball, playing any sport, and then create a short routine that you perform every time before you do the thing you love. And maybe you take three deaths, three deep breaths and smile. So example, three deep breaths, smile, pet the dog, repeat. Eventually you begin to associate this breathe and smile routine with being in a good mood. It becomes a cue that means feeling happy. Once established, you can break it out anytime you need to change your emotional state. So stress at work, take three deep breaths and smile. Sad about life, three deep breaths and smile. Once a habit has been built, the cue can prompt a craving. Even has little to do with the original situation. The key to finding and fixing the causes of your bad habits is to reframe the associations you have about them. It's not easy, but if you can reprogram your predictions, you can transform a hard habit into an attractive one. So there you have it right there. How to find and fix the causes of your bad habit. And that recap, that caps off um, the second law. Make it attractive. And if you're nodding off or falling asleep or dozing off, I get it. So that's why I'm going to give you a little quick summary. Three points how to create a good habit for make it attractive. One, use temptation building. Pair an action you want to do with an action you need to do. Another one, join a culture where you desired behavior is a normal behavior. Last one, create a motivational ritual. Do something you enjoy immediately before a difficult habit. And how to break a bad one. The inversion of the second law, which is make it unattractive. Reframe your mindset. Highlight the benefits of avoiding your bad habits. So there you have it, guys. Ladies and gentlemen, second law, make it attractive. Inversion of it is make it attractive. Um, stay tuned um, for the next one. It's part four on the third law, which is make it easy. And it's, it's inversion is make it difficult. So guys, thank you for listening to Late Night Facts of X podcast. Um, remember to reach out to me at latenightfactsofx.gmail.com and on Twitter at Late Night Facts. I appreciate you guys for listening to some facts. Before you go to bed, um, just remember guys, you listen to this advice. If you buy the book, I guarantee you, I put down my money that it will help you so much. Um, it helped you be better at exercise. It helped you become neater, organized. It helped me, helped me with the reward system. So I become motivated each and every day. Cause guys, trust me, grinding every day and not getting results every day. It's, it can be challenging and can, it can make you pissed off really easily. And I noticed that too. Like I lose motivation every day. Um, I still got a lot of it, but I kept on losing it every day and I don't know why. Because I didn't have a good reward system. And for me, it might not be for everyone. I found like watching a good movie at night. And then getting eight hours of sleep. Um, that got me going every day. And ultimately prayer too. Because I can't do this without God. For sure. 100% facts right there. Alright guys. Stay tuned. Stay tuned for part number four of Habits. Alright. Bax is out. Good night.